We're going to turn for a little time this evening to the letter to the Hebrews and uh, the first chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, that's on page 1201, 1201 in the Church Bibles or 1860 in the Large Print Bibles. This is headed in the NIV, God's final word, his son, and I'm going to read down to verse 4 of chapter 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, Today you are my son, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We praise God for his word. The Apostle John records a time in the ministry of Jesus on earth when many who had started to follow him uh, turned away. And that's recorded for us in uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 6. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. When many were turning away, Peter says, Lord, where else can we go? I wonder if you were asked the same question tonight. Would you answer the same as Peter? Well, the letter to the Hebrews was written to believers who were in danger of turning away. Unusually, amongst the New Testament letters, it doesn't say who it is from or directly who it is addressed to. Rather, right at the start, in the first two verses, the writer introduces the theme uh, of the whole book, that Jesus is God's final word. So although not directly addressed, it's clear that the letter is written to Hebrew Christians. We know this because of some of the things that the writer assumes that they are aware of concerning the uh, history of the Hebrews. And it's written for the purpose of urging them to continue to persevere in their faith. Clearly, some through persecution were on the brink of abandoning their trust in Jesus and going back. The writer says, in effect, what are you going to replace Jesus with? Who can match up? Who can give you anything better than what you have found in him? Salvation in his name. So he sets about reminding them of the things they already know, but need to hear again. And uh, that's like our lives, isn't it? There's lots of things we already know, but we need to hear again and again and again. In verses 1 to 4, the writer speaks of the God who speaks in past days and in last days. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in, and in various ways. In the past, well, that's all of history before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we read of in the Old Testament is included here. God spoke right at the start in creation. He spoke through the building of the ark. He spoke through the Tower of Babel when he came down and confused the language of the people who tried to reach God by their own efforts. He spoke when he called Abraham and said that he would make him the father of a multitude, more than could be numbered. He spoke in the slavery of his people as they were in Egypt. And he spoke in the miracle of the Exodus when he uh, redeemed them out of there. And what a graphic and glorious picture of what he was later to do in the Lord Jesus Christ that was as the firstborn was given as the firstborn was slain in order that they may uh, be redeemed, the firstborn of Egypt. He spoke through the setting up of the tabernacle in the wilderness and in all the sacrificial system. He spoke through the raising up of kings and particularly of David, a man after God's own heart. He spoke through the years of exile uh, as his people had sinned and and abandoned that which God had called them to, obedience to him, and they had to leave their land. He spoke through the return, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Day after day, year after year, God spoke. 
in the past. But in these last days, verse 2 tells us, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. We have uh, this glorious contrast, but in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. The phrase last days underlines the truth that Jesus is God's final word to us. In the past days, He spoke through the prophets in, uh, in various ways, preparing the way for the last days when He would send His Son into the world. And since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there have arisen many religions, cults, sects, whatever, who claim to possess God's final word. But God's final word has already been spoken in Jesus in the last days. Verse 2 tells us two things about the Son of God, whom He appointed heir of all things. Jesus is heir of all things. All things belong to Jesus Christ. He is the 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 heir of all. Psalm 2 says about the Son, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth as your possession. That means quite simply that you and I belong to Jesus. He is the heir of all things. And secondly, verse 2 tells us it was through Jesus that God made the universe. It was through Jesus Christ that God made these things. John, John says in his gospel, through him all things were made, and without him was not, nothing made that has been made. The Apostle Paul brings these two truths together in Colossians 1, when he says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Why are these two truths mentioned at this point? Well, they establish the credentials of the one by whom God has spoken. The Lord Jesus is the one who made all things and who owns all things. In other words, He alone has authority to speak. Well, if verse 2 is wonderful, it gets better in verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. I can't think of many places in the Bible that pack so much wonderful truth into one verse than here in verse 3 of Hebrews 1. In the list of great verses to memorize, surely this must be included. Having said that, I must confess I haven't deliberately sat down to memorize it, but I think I could repeat it. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. In all the history of the Old Testament, nothing revealed the glory of God in the measure that Christ revealed. Moses, when he went up to meet with God on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, when he came down, his face was radiant, but it faded. He had to put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't see his, the radiance fading away. David wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
That is, they show something of God's glory in, a, in an indirect way. Just as a great musical work de declares the skill of the composer. But when Jesus came, John wrote, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. We could say that where the heavens reflected the glory of God, Jesus radiated his glory. And the reason for that, we're told, is that Jesus is the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And what does this Son, who is the radiance of God's glory, what does he do? He sustains all things by his powerful word. He upholds all things. In verse 2, we discovered that Christ was active in the creation of the universe. Now we find that he, uphold, he upholds all things. He sustains all things. As Paul again says in Colossians, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And again, all things includes you and me. Have we understood this? Your life and my life is in Christ's hand, hands. He gives me and you your next breath and your next heartbeat. You can turn away from him, but you can never stop being completely dependent on him. You can refuse to worship him, but you can never stop being totally dependent on everything he gives you. David tried to do that, tried to run away from God at one, on one occasion, didn't he? Where can I go from your spirit? He said, where can I flee from your presence? And he came to the conclusion that wherever he went, he could not escape God. And we cannot escape him. If we could, then we would be completely lost and abandoned. What wonderful grace that sustains us all even when we want to run away from him. After he had provided purification for sins, we read, how has Jesus provided purification for sins? And what does it mean to, be, to have purification for sins? Well, the writer is giving hints on subjects that he will expand on later on in the book. In fact, he'll open up this whole truth of chapter 1 throughout the book to show how the Son of God is greater than all things. So later on in chapter 9, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer himself without blemish, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then later in verse 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ provided purification for sins through his own blood, through the giving of himself. And without that shedding, there is no forgiveness. That's the gospel. That's the good news we all need. Forgiveness of sins and the clean conscious, conscience that follows has been accomplished through the shed blood of Christ for all who will believe and trust Him. There's nothing that displays the glory of God more than the cross of Jesus Christ. 
in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We sang earlier on, you are the glorious Christ, and no greater sacrifice than when you laid down your life. And isn't it a wonderful truth that that which the world mocks and scoffs at, that which the multitudes feel is a display of utter weakness, is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the utmost glory of God, the cross of our Lord Jesus. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Here we have accomplishment and authority. The work of providing sins for forgiveness of sins was completed at the cross, and Christ sits down. Again, the writer takes up this theme later on. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Day after day, again and again. Think on that for a moment. The priests and the people who were involved in this, these sacrifices continually but what was the result? There was no sense of permanent forgiveness. There was no cure for a guilty conscience. Just a reminder of what they were and the necessity to offer more sacrifices the next day and the next and the next. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, he sat down and he cried upon the cross, it is finished and the sacrifice was complete. Christ accomplished our salvation in that once-for-all sacrifice, and now he sits at the place of authority, the place of rule, the right hand of God. And this underlines that this finished work has God's seal of approval. It is unique. There is no one else sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. People might want to say to us, oh, it's all, it's all okay for you to believe that. Um, I've got my own beliefs and they'll be all right for me. But sadly and tragically, they won't be all right because there is only one Son of God who accomplished purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so the writer goes on to say in verse 4, he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. As we have mentioned, this book shows how the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to everyone else and everything else. So why does the writer begin by speaking first about Jesus being superior to angels? It may seem to us like an odd place to begin. After all, we don't think too much these days about angels, do we? Well, the answer is that this book was written to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people, and to the religious Jew 
angels were of great importance. They believed in all the biblical accounts of angels and in the Old Testament there are well over a hundred, I think, references to a God sending angels and God using angels in, in his work. And they were, believed all of these biblical references, but they also added their own traditions and beliefs. Here are some facts that we know about what uh, some of the Hebrews believed. They believed that angels were the highest beings next to God. They believed that angels were mediators between men and God. They believed that angels kept the administration running. You know, that they're, they're the admin office, they thought, um, between them and God all the time. They believed that there were special angels that controlled the snow, the frost, the oceans, and thunder. There were angels that recorded everything every person ever said. There was even a calendar angel that controlled the course of months and years. They believed in a vast number of angels. One rabbi even said that there was an angel for every blade of grass. But clearly, many of these beliefs were totally not biblical at all. And no doubt the Hebrew believers to whom this writer is addressing they had come to see that many of these things were wrong and they'd moved away from them. But it seems that the wrong thinking about angels still had a hold among some. We read in uh, Colossians, Paul writing to the Colossians, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. And this uh, preoccupation with angels hasn't entirely gone away in our days. Uh, many of the false sects and religions would think of Jesus as some type of exalted angel. So this shows us and helps us to see why the writer of Hebrews had to show how Jesus is superior to the angels. If they were thinking of Jesus simply uh, as a mere man, a human, they would never uh, accept this, accept that. So the writer explains from Scripture how Jesus is superior to the angels, indeed superior to all created beings. And this is what God says about Jesus. He's the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. And in verses 5 to 14, we see that the writer quotes seven Old Testament verses to show ways in which the Lord Jesus is far superior to angels. And in each case, he has no hesitation in saying, God says. Just read down sometime when you have a moment and see how many times it says, uh, the word says, what God says. In other words, that which is written is what God says. So he says, Jesus is, in verse 5, superior by name. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. In verse 4, we learned that Jesus became superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And verse 5 tells us what that name is. It is son, son of God. God never called an angel by that name. When Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Then in verse 6, we learn that Jesus is superior because he is worshipped. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is worshipped by angels. But the Bible makes it clear that only God should be worshipped. John Piper says this, Now, worshipping Jesus is a huge issue. It separates Christianity from Judaism on one side and Islam on the other side, and from cults like the Caesar cult in the early centuries that killed Christians for not worshipping Caesar, and from Jehovah's Witnesses today who say that Jesus is an archangel. All of these religions say Jesus is not to be worshipped, and that is understandable unless Jesus is the Son of God. But God's word says, let all God's angels worship him. And that leads us into the next verses, because Jesus is superior, because he is God. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The angels are called servants. The Son is called God. And he is a king. He is a king. He has a throne, a scepter, and he is anointed. The writer also says in verse 10 that he is superior because he is the eternal creator. He also says, sorry, I've gone on too far there, ignore that. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. In verse 13 we learn that Jesus is superior in authority. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool from your feet? Well, what do we learn from these verses? Well, first note again the emphasis throughout on what God says. This passage is all about what God says about Jesus. How does the writer know what God says? He relies entirely upon Scripture, upon the Bible. The Bible then is utterly trustworthy because it is God, what God says. And secondly, the Bible is ultimately all about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one and nothing, not even exalted angels, that is better than Jesus. Now, we might not have a problem with wrong thinking about angels, but the principle applies to whatever or whoever we might consider to be better than Jesus and better than trusting in him and living for him. Jesus is superior to everything lesser that we might worship. John Piper again. Hopefully I've got the right slide. Yes, Jesus is infinitely superior to angels. They were created not to compete with Christ, but to worship Christ and honor him. And the chief way they do that on earth is by serving us so that we hold fast to Christ and trust him and love him and treasure him and finally reach him in the fullness of our salvation. So angels were created for Christ's everlasting glory, 
and for our everlasting joy. Well, what else on earth can give us the joy of knowing we are loved by the Son of God, saved by his blood, assured that we shall be with him in eternal joy forever? If we should be tempted to drift away from this great salvation, what on earth can replace this? So, we need to pay attention to what God says. And God says, don't drift away. We must pay the most careful attention then to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We must pay careful attention to what we have heard. Well, what had the readers of this letter, of the original readers of this letter heard? What have we heard? They and we have heard the gospel, that Jesus is God's Messiah, They heard it from the lips of those who had heard and seen Jesus and could testify to what they had heard. They had seen and experienced the confirming signs, wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the writer in chapter 1 has outlined all, all that this should have led them to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the things that we've been speaking about this evening. That he is almighty God that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, that he is the radiance and exact representation of the Father, that he is the one who has paid for all our sins with his own blood. He is the one whose salvation work is complete. There's nothing that anyone can add. The one who is unique and superior to everyone and everything else in all creation and that forgiveness of sin and salvation from sin's penalty can be found in no one else. This is what they had heard. This is what the writer is saying they must pay most careful attention to. What must they do then? What must we do so that we may not drift away? Now here's the idea here. Using this word drift away, it gives a a, a nautical illustration really. Um, A boat that is anchored to its mooring doesn't drift away. If it's anchored securely, uh, it can stand uh, and stay against the tides or the flow of the river as long as it is securely anchored. But if it's not anchored, it doesn't really have to do anything in order to drift away. It will just go with the flow. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, and the Lord miraculously um, opened the gates and let them out. And the Philippian jailer um, was fearful and tried, indeed, tried to take his own life because he thought that they had all escaped, and they told him not to. And he came to them uh, in fear and trembling and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a good question, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? But if we should turn round and Ask another question like that tonight. What must I do to be lost? What must I do to be lost? 
The answer's nothing. You don't have to do anything to be lost. You'll just drift away. We will easily drift away unless we have a firm anchor. This is what we must pay careful attention to. Why is this so very vital? We have the answer in verses 2 and 3. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape? The writer is taking his readers back into the Old Testament to the time of the Exodus. God miraculously rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and he then met with Moses at Mount Sinai and gave him the law, the Ten Commandments and other commandments, God's instructions on how his people should live. This was the message spoken by angels. It was a binding message in the sense that God, because he is a holy and just God, cannot overlook sin. Every violation and every disobedience must receive its just punishment. There are no small sins to God. Maybe we think we have thoughts in our minds about different gradations of sin, don't we? That some things are worse than others, and in many respects, of course, they are. But there are no small sins to God. There's nothing that we can say, God will, he'll overlook that. He won't bother about that. He knows it's just part of my nature to be like that. No, there are no sins uh, that are small to God. Every violation and every disobedience must and will receive its just punishment. Well, that was the, the message spoken through angels, the message spoken from Sinai, the giving of the law. And Paul speaks about this message in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He speaks of the giving of this law as the ministry that brought death and the ministry that brought condemn, condemnation. Why? Well, simply because no one was able to fulfill its demands. Nobody could obey perfectly. All the law can do is make us aware of our failure. So in view of this, the writer says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The salvation we must not ignore is the good news, the great news, that everything we have failed to do, Jesus, the mighty God and perfect man, has done perfectly for us. He has fully obeyed the law and has credited his obedience to our account. Not only that, but Jesus, the mighty God, the perfect man, has received the just punishment for every violation and disobedience. He has paid the price that we could never pay. Who would want to ignore this? Who would want to neglect this? In Matthew 22, Jesus told the parable of the wedding banquet. The king prepares a banquet for his son and sends his servants to tell those invited to come. But they paid no attention and they go about their own business. Things that they consider were of more importance. Apparently, the words used in Matthew 22, they paid no attention, is the same here as used here uh, as ignoring salvation thinking of it as no account or nothing really to bother about. What other saviour do we have if we neglect the salvation that the Lord Jesus has come into this earth to 
achieved for us by going to the cross. Well, how must we pay attention? Let me just mention in conclusion just two things. Well, have we paid attention to the message of the gospel for the first time? Have we started out on our journey of faith? Or have we let the message slip away? Do we mentally drift away from what we hear each time we hear it? Do we just kind of say, well, yeah, that was pretty good. Well, just let it slip and think about it some other time. Do we assume that God isn't speaking to us when we hear his word? Do we think it's not important? Have we started on the journey? Have we asked God to forgive our sins? Have we asked him to make us his child? Have we trusted in Jesus' death? Have we realized the danger we are in? If we have not, how shall we escape? Well, if we have done that, the second question is, are we pressing on? Are we pressing on with the Lord Jesus Christ? If we have trusted in him and are following him, are we paying attention to those things that will keep us from drifting away? The rest of the book of Hebrews is about these things, and uh, we could read many, many things. But let me just quote one or two things from Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Let's have our, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's draw near to God. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we, we profess. Let's consider how to help one another, spur one another on. Let's not give up meeting together. If we think we can go it alone, we'll soon find that we're drifting away. All this from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's throw off everything that hinders. Let's run the race that God has marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes upon Jesus and never take our eyes off Jesus. Finally, going back to the passage in John that I quoted at the start, I wonder how Peter and the others felt when they saw many going back and no longer following Jesus. Surely it would have made them very sad. Jesus confronts them with a question, do you also want to leave? Sometimes we hear of those who once followed Jesus giving up and rejecting the faith. They may be high-profile Christian leaders, plenty of that happens, 
or maybe close friends who have influenced our own walk with Jesus. When we hear such things, it might cause us to wonder and be troubled. Christian pastor and blogger David Robertson has some help for us. The girl who influenced his conversion uh, in his younger years uh, later on abandoned her faith, walked away from God. And uh, David was asked, doesn't that trouble you about your own faith? Well, David replied, no, I don't believe because of her. I believe because of Jesus. That's very like the experience of the people in the Samaritan visitor village of Sychar, isn't it? Remember when Jesus met the woman at the well? She went and told everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Because of her testimony, many came and believed in Jesus. And then they said, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Is that your conviction? You've heard the gospel, but you've moved from hearing it from others to saying, I know this for myself. This is real to me. His blood has taken away my sin. Jesus is the saviour of the world. Let us continue every day to fix our eyes upon him. I'm going to sing a great uh, song now. Uh, yes, finished, the Messiah dies. And as we think about uh, the past days and the last days, how we can praise God that the ancient shadows of the past days are all fulfilled in him. And he is the uh, final word, God's final word. Yes, finished, the Messiah dies.